This is a CBC podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me. We're back with the next play in our season, The Boy in the Moon, by Governor General Award finalist Emile Scherer. Adapted from the best-selling memoir by Globe and Mail journalist Ian Brown. The Boy in the Moon is a candid and intimate look inside Ian Brown's family as he and his wife raised their son, Walker, who was born with a rare genetic disorder leaving him unable to talk, walk, or even eat on his own. The play combines the text of the award-winning book along with playwright's interview with Ian, his wife Johanna Schnellner, and their daughter Haley. The result is an unflinching look at the uncertainty of parenthood, the fragility of life, and what it means to be human. This is part one of three of The Boy in the Moon by Emile Scher, adapted from Ian Brown's book of the same name. Every night is the same. I wake up in the dark to a steady, motorized noise. Something wrong with the water heater? But it's not the water heater. It's my boy. Walker, grunting as he punches himself in the head again and again. I count the grunts as I pad my way into his room. One a second. To get him to stop hitting himself, I have to lure him back to sleep, which means taking him downstairs and making him a bottle. That sounds simple enough, doesn't it? But with Walker, everything is complicated. Because of his syndrome, he can't eat solid food by mouth. He takes in formula through the night via a um, feeding system. The formula runs along a line from a feed bag and a pump on an IV stand through a hole in Walker's sleeper and into a, a thing, a permanent valve in his belly, sometimes known as a Mickey. To take him out of bed and down to the kitchen to prepare the bottle that will ease him back to sleep, I have to disconnect the line from the Mickey. To do this, I first have to turn off the pump in the dark so he doesn't wake up completely and close the feed line. If I don't clamp the line, the the, the stuff, the sticky formula pours out onto the bed and I have to change the sheets or the floor. The floor in Walker's room, the carpet in his room is pale blue. There are patches that feel like the Gobi Desert under my feet from all the times I've forgotten. To crimp the tube, I thumb a tiny red plastic roller down a slide. That's my favorite part of the routine. One thing, at least, is easy, under my control. 
I unzip his one-piece sleeper. Walker is small and grows so slowly he will wear the same sleepers for a year and a half at a time. Reach in, unlock the line from the Mickey, pull the line out through the hole in his sleeper and hang it on the IV stand. Close the Mickey, re-zip the sleeper. Then I reach in and lift all 45 pounds of Walker from the depths of his crib. He still sleeps in a crib. It's the only way we can keep him in bed at night. He can do a lot of damage on his own. But there is another complication here. Before I can slip downstairs with Walker for a bottle, the bloom of his diaper pillows up around me. He's not toilet trained. Without a new diaper, he won't fall back to sleep and stop smacking his head and ears. So we detour from the routine of the feeding tube to the routine of the diaper. I spin 180 degrees to the battered changing table, wondering, as I do every time, how this will work when he's 20 and I'm 60. The trick is to pin his arms to keep him from whacking himself, but... How do you change a 45-pound boy's brimming diaper while immobilizing both his hands so he doesn't bang his head or reach down and scratch his backside, thereby smearing excrement everywhere? I hold his left hand with my left hand and tuck his right hand out of commission under my left armpit. I've done it so many times, it's like walking. I keep his heels out of the disaster zone by using my right elbow to stop his knees from bending and do all the actual nasty business with my right hand. My wife, Johanna, can't manage this alone anymore and sometimes calls me to help her. I am never charming when she does. And the change itself. A task to be approached with all the delicacy of a munitions expert in a Bond movie defusing an atomic device. The unfolding and positioning of the new diaper. The disbelief that it will ever hold. The immense, surging relief of finally refastening it. We made it! The world is safe again! The reinsertion of his legs into the sleeper. There are nights when nothing works. And nights when he's up and at it, laughing, playing, crawling all over me. I don't mind those nights, tired as I am. His sight is poor, but in the dark, we are equal. In the night, there can be stretches when he is no different from any other lively boy. Makes me almost cry to tell you that. Sometimes watching Walker is like looking at the moon. You see the face of the man in the moon, yet you know there is actually no man there. But if Walker is so insubstantial, why is he so important? My wife, Johanna Schneller. Hi. So the book is Ian's Journey. And I'm totally fine with that. I have no regrets or anything about him writing it in that way. Uh, I mean, uh, the first thing I read was in the Globe and Mail 
and I didn't read it until everyone was reading it. Mm -hmm. I remember it came out around Christmas time when we were going to all these cocktail parties. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the only line that makes me snort is when Ian is giving Walker formula and we had to cut the nipples to make them bigger. And Ian says, I look at the nipples that I cut. I can't even say the line because Ian never cut any nipples in his life. I did. Ian was my teacher, guest lecturer at Radcliffe for seven years. No, no, no. I was the permanent writing instructor. On staff for summers, and I was the sixth of seven summers. Were you? Yeah. I think there was one summer after me. There was no need. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I fell madly in love with him right off the bat and confessed to him that I felt this way. And then for the next three years, we commuted from Between, uh, Toronto to, and, and New York. When I first saw him, I spent the next six weeks plotting to get him alone. He would have these tutorials. And if you got the last tutorial of the day, you could take him out for a drink. There was a sign-up sheet. And for the first two weeks, every slot was taken. There were 86 of us in the class, and 60 were girls, fresh out of college. <laughs> I was 22. He was 30. It was 1984. I just graduated and ended up moving to New York to make my fortune. And then Ian got a book deal to write a book about Canadian Tire. That was our first mistake. The Canadian Tire book or moving in with me? Oh, no, that was the best thing that had ever happened to me at that at point. At that point. Then Haley came along. After we were married. We met in 84, got married in... 89. 89. Yeah, we met in 84. I moved up in 87. We got married in 89, but then we moved back to the States in 1990 to L.A. So we were in L.A. from 90 to 94, and during that time, Haley was born. Haley was the best thing that had ever happened to me, but I wasn't sure we could afford a second child. I wanted Haley to have allies in her future fights with us. I liked the idea of a larger family, but Johanna and I were both writers, and we never had much money. I wanted some reassurance that I would not have to give up my ambitions. A friend said, tell your wife you don't want to be a stay-at-home dad, which I did, to which Johanna said, I know. As a young single man, I had often seen married couples arguing in the street or eating dinner together in restaurants, silent for half an hour at a time. Why? do that, I thought to myself. Later, after I married, uh, I would see couples harried by children and wonder, why do that? And to see a couple with a disabled child filled me with horror. Not the sight of the child, but the thought of the burden. That's the kettle. I'll be right back. Who do I love that I've interviewed? Um, well, there's a there's a couple people I've interviewed that have actually read the book, the Walker book. Interestingly, um, Diane Keaton, Julianne Moore. Um, what is what is going on over there? She's got her collar caught in the. She's oh. not the brightest. Ginny's <laughs> cheerful. She doesn't have to be smart. Um, who do I love that I've interviewed? I, I love Emma Thompson. I love her. I want to befriend her. Um, Johnny Depp was as sweet as can be. Robert Downey Jr. stands out. Hi. Hi. Oh, you want the car? Yeah. You back for dinner? Yeah. Great. Um, 
And Julia Roberts is mean. Tell everyone. I have interviewed her twice, and she is so mean. Tell the uh, uh, Annette Benning story. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I had this amazing interview with Annette Benning where she said, do you have kids? And I, I kind of struggled about how to answer the question even. So you could um, just say yes and end it there. Right, or you could say, you know, well, my daughter, blah, 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 and never really answer the question. So I kind of stumbled over the answer, and I said, yeah, well, I have two, and my, my son has this rare genetic syndrome. Anyway, and then we moved on. And then at the end of the interview, she said, do you have a couple of minutes? And I said, yeah. And she said, I want to ask you about your son. And it was just so sweet and everything. I just, I was just really grateful to have this little human moment, you know? I think, I think also because I never really talked about Walker very much, not even to my closest friends, you know, and I've got great friends. We talk about everything, you know, we talk about our, um, our husbands and, uh, you know, bosses, kids, but, uh, yeah, it was just the one thing I, I, I didn't talk about. But yeah, no, in terms of what uh, Ian was saying before about expectations, yeah, it was always a fear of mine. And we had the, the whole thing, the blood test, the amnio, the whole nine yards. There was no genetic test for his syndrome when he was born. There still isn't. I mean, if there had been a test when I was pregnant that would have revealed what Walker's life would be like, I would have had an abortion. But, you know, we were young, we got pregnant right away, and there was, there was every chance we could have another normal child, a normal sibling for Haley. But then you wouldn't have had Walker. No, I mean, you can't say after I've known Walker would I have done anything to get rid of him. It's, it's you know, it's one thing to abort an anonymous fetus. It's another thing to murder Walker. <laughs> A fetus wouldn't be Walker. What do you think the world would be like without people like Walker, without kids like him? I mean, kids who have, like, real setbacks. Yeah, I mean, a world where there were only... Masters of the universe would be like Sparta. It would not be a kind country, but I'm not the person to ask. What do you mean? I still have mixed feelings about everything I've done and everything I haven't done. <laughs> um, yeah, I hear parents of disabled kids saying all the time, you know, I wouldn't change my child. I wouldn't trade them for anything. Uh, but I would. If I could trade Walker for the most ordinary kid that got C's in school, I would do it in a heartbeat. Not for my sake or for our sake, but for his sake. I think Walker has a very, very hard life. Okay, okay, the birth story. I was at work hosting a three-hour weekly public radio show. Johanna called after the second hour. She was in labor. Her voice was only a notch off its usual calm. Johanna took a taxi to the hospital, one that uh, specializes in women's health. I finished work and met her there. Her own doctor was on holiday. The delivery would be supervised by one of her doctor's partners, a tall, mild man named Lake. Walker wasn't his fault, of course, but I never forgave him anyway. Something else was off that day. Besides my wife's regular doctor, the way the boy, we call him the boy, the moment after he came out, 
slumped in the obstetrician's hand. He was a preemie. What irritated Dr. Norman Saunders... Walker's pediatrician. What irritated Saunders was that the hospital had not called him soon enough after Johanna had delivered an obviously troubled baby five weeks early. It was the 23rd of June, a Sunday. The moment after he came out, his skin is jaundiced, his lungs haven't opened well, he wears a strange, defeated look as if he knows something is wrong. And the interns whisk him off to a table and put an oxygen mask over his tiny mouth and nose. He was six pounds when he was born. And quickly lost a pound. He could only open one eye. We were, uh-oh, right away, but we attributed it to the preeminess for the first while, but Dr. Saunders was the one who said that Walker wasn't just a preemie. He, he knew from the start. Walker needed an hour to ingest half an ounce of milk. His body didn't want to survive. And when he did get it down, he threw it up. He just puked and puked and puked and puked everything. We were feeding him with an eyedropper and he was puking it up. We do want this child to live, don't we? We called Saunders Dr. Doom. His question seemed to imply another. This child cannot live without going to extraordinary lengths. Do you want to go to those lengths and live with the consequences? Was Dr. Doom asking me if I wanted to let Walker's life end? as nature would have ended it? Ian and I have a completely different impression of that encounter. I believe Saunders was saying, we will not let this baby die. I sit on the back steps of our little house in the heart of the city at 4 a.m. smoking and thinking the unthinkable. What if we don't take extraordinary measures? What if he gets sick and we don't work so hard to get him better? Not murder, just nature. Ian's wrong. Ian has it as, you know, we, we might let nature take its course if you want us to, but that's not, that's... Even as I consider these plans, I know I can't enact them. I'm not bragging. My hesitation is not ethical or moral. It's more a medieval urge, instinctual, physical, fear of retribution if I ignore the dull call of his flesh and his body and his need. I believe Saunders was reassuring us. He thought we thought Walker was going to die. So he was saying, you know, don't worry, everything will be fine. After years as a freelancer, I had finally landed a full-time gig as host of Sunday Morning on CBC Radio. I was on the cusp of a new chapter in my career when Walker was born, when life changed Completely. I could feel the heavy, tragic years coming on ahead of me as certain as bad weather. But you know, I even welcomed them. At last, a fate I didn't have to choose, a destiny I couldn't avoid. There was a tiny prick of light in that thought. The relief of submitting to the unavoidable. We make two or three trips a week to the hospital. Infections of the ears, gasping colds, epic constipation. Rashes, bleeding, dehydration, toothaches. Crying, unstoppable crying. Reality goes 3D in the inferno of the emergency ward. Half a dozen children crying at once, each in a different key. Rossini would have made an opera out of it. And of course, the equally raucous sound, one you can't always hear, but you can always feel feel as a roaring in your ears, the anxieties of the parents. 
The doctors are always flummoxed by Walker's condition. You learn a geological patience. Always ask the same questions. Always want the same details over and over again. Yes, he eats entirely by stomach tube. No. Yes, we have tried feeding him by mouth. No. Chloral hydrate. No. Yes, by prescription. No, no, it's not his ears. I know it's not his ears because I was here yesterday about his ears. It's not his ears. He doesn't cry like this when it's just his ears. Yes, doctor. Yes, I waited. I waited five days with him screaming all the time before I even, even thought, thought of bringing, bringing him, him here. here. Antiseptic. Shit. Coffee. Worry. Puke. Fear. Muffins. Grief. Fresh linen. Curtains. Hiding unknowable despair. The questions. Is it curable? Can they see my fear? The inevitable comparison. Is my child better off than that child? Through it all, you hold your child's body, hold its flesh and heat close to you like a skin of fire because you have to hang on to what life there is. Just hang on. Just hang on. Just, Just hang, hang on. on. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. In the first year of Walker's life, I really wanted a diagnosis. Because I knew that once we got a diagnosis, we would know what to do. You know, you do this and this and this and this and this. Not that I thought we could fix it, but I thought we could be proactive. We eventually got the diagnosis. Walker was about a year old. They did the tests, and the geneticist says... He has CFC. Cardiofasciocutaneous syndrome. It's a technical name for a mash of symptoms. An impossibly rare genetic mutation. Cardio. Ever-present murmurs and malformations... What had been, to that point, a matter of health, something you could fix, was now suddenly a matter of science, carved in genetic stone. There are just over 300 people in the world that have CFC. Like many CFC children, Walker can't chew or swallow easily. He can't speak. His skin is often sensitive to touch to the point of agony. His vision and hearing are compromised. He's thin and wobbly. He's stronger than he looks. Under his birdie limbs... He's granite. Heart defects range from serious to unimportant. Okay. So, what do we do? I'll see you next year. What? The house is a well-organized nightmare. You can't survive as the parent of a disabled child if you aren't organized, and my wife is. There are the famous laundry baskets of toys on every floor. Of course, he never plays with the toys. That's not true. He plays with them, but he was good for only about three minutes, but you couldn't leave him and run to get another one. Plastic activity boards hanging off the backs of the chairs in the kitchen and the living room. He loves to touch things. The bottom three slats of every window blind in the house are mangled. The light switch. The fascinating toilet paper tube. Anything that beeps or flickers. The best part is the way he explodes with laughter and rocks into a ball of glee at 
some mysterious thing, which passers-by love. For a while, I suspected he was rubbing his penis between his thighs, a traditional source of merriment for all boys. He loves to clear tables and flat surfaces, especially closely guarded ones. He goes for glasses of wine, which seem to catch his eye, so we call him... The temperance man. His desires are invisible, unspoken, but that doesn't mean he has none. Here's one evening. I leave him in an enclosed hallway at the foot of some stairs in a friend's elegant house while we have dinner. I know he can't climb stairs, and I know he can't open a door. Ten minutes later, I hear a tinkling sound, a beautiful sound, a sound like the air breaking, but unusual enough to go and see what it is. It's Walker. He has done the unimagined and climbed the stairs and opened the door and is now gleefully... And deliberately... ...smashing the last of seven wine glasses on a Noguchi coffee table. Not a scratch on him. We come to call that evening... Kristallnacht. Not a particularly joke. funny joke, but if you spend a lot of time with a disabled child, a child who was not supposed to live and whose survival has radically changed your life, especially if said child is your child, you feel you can break the rules. He loves women. The prettier, the better. He climbs into a woman's lap, immediately peers down her neckline, and then he feels her up. I thought it was accidental, a result of his condition, but Johanna says... It's hereditary. He loves anything shiny, fingering it close to his wonky eyes. Our friends call him the jeweler. I never stop wondering if we're imagining Walker's progress, inventing the connections we think he's making. Does he really say hey, hey, when Haley is nearby? Or is he just breathing? When I say goodbye to him and lean down and kiss him, does he really say bye? Or is he just breathing? Johanna hears it too. He just said goodbye. She will say, followed by... I'm gonna cry. He makes people feel things. But what, what, what does, does he, he feel? feel? Does the boy I see Beneath his stolid surface, beneath the dead, calm pond of his mind, actually exist? Or is it just wishful, wishful thinking? thinking? When Walker was little, we started renting a cottage on an island in Georgian Bay. It was the first place I ever imagined him having an inner life, a life private from the rest of us, and it is there. One summer afternoon as everyone rests after a day of swimming that Johanna snaps a shot of him on the soft blue couch in the living room, the sun glowing through the wraparound windows. The spitting image of his father as a kid. Hmm. Maybe that's why I like it. It's proof of our bond. I see his slim thighs, his tan. Oh, he has his head on his hands and his knees are up. He's wearing a blue sweatshirt and a pair of checked shorts. Haley's cast-offs. It's as close as we ever got to a picture of what might have been. It even feels slightly dishonest 
That was part one of three of The Boy in the Moon by Emile Scher, based on the book by Ian Brown. The play featured David Storch, Lisa Repo-Martel, and Kelly McNamee. Parts two and three are available now on Play Me. The adaptation of The Boy in the Moon was commissioned by the Belfry Theatre and the Great Canadian Theatre Company. It was developed and premiered at the Great Canadian Theatre Company with the support of the Charles Dauphin Tribute Fund and revised for a second production with the support of Crow's Theatre. The original theatrical production was directed by Chris Abram. This episode's sound design and edit is by Chris Tolley. It also features some original music and sound design from the stage version by Thomas Ryder Payne. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.